Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 405, Late Season Tactics, with Mike Chamberlain. And I am your co-host, and the guy who got edumacated Saturday. And I'm your co-host and the guy who got rid of some cedars this week. Oh, you're talking like cedar trees, not cedars as in what you hook up to the back of a four-wheeler or tractor. <laughs> yeah, no, cedar, cedar trees. Gotcha. Cedar trees, the, the, the trees that put out tons of shade and no benefit to turkeys. Yeah. Those would be the ones. So we hacked those jokers down and we had kind of a three different areas we still have one to go and we still have quite a few to cut down but got some headway on it where basically we're hacking down all the cedars leaving everything else which isn't much is mostly cedars and then when we come in with a burn in february that'll clear those out and those areas will turn into really nice nesting and brooding habitat instead of them being basically useless when you light that up in february let me know i'm going to go outside yeah. Here in Birmingham and watch the watch. fire. 
yeah, you should be able to see it from there. It's gonna, it's gonna be insane. <laughs> it is. It's gonna be. A, everybody bring your s'mores. You can stand a couple miles away and get them cooked good. It's yes, gonna be awesome. Indeed, that's gonna be a hot one. Yeah. So, but it is gonna turn. You know, several acres, ten, fifteen acres, whatever it is, which doesn't sound like much, but that's a lot of nesting and brooding habitat that wasn't on the farm. So. Yeah, we'll take it. And, and speaking of nesting and brooding habitat, I'm assuming that's what you got edumacated about this weekend. Man, yeah, I got to tell you, I was expecting good stuff from the NWTF field day that was this past Saturday, but I don't know that I was expecting what I got. I mean, it was really, really good stuff. So Dr. Lee Youngblood got up and talked for about an hour and a half about chufa and weed control in chufa, how to properly plant it, how to fertilize it, how to care for it. Just really good information. And then Marcus Lashley got up and talked for probably another hour and a half about habitat. And, you know, he and, and Dr. Chamberlain says the same thing, but I can't tell you how many times he mentioned that what is lacking across the landscape, private land, public land, it doesn't matter. What is lacking is brood habitat. Good brood habitat. And he mm. talked about that. He showed slides. Not, not really slides. You know, I'm going old school on you. I'm showing my age here. But he had a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> showing pictures of what all of that looked like. You know, what was good brood habitat, what's bad brood habitat. And it was really eye-opening, really eye-opening. And, you know, listening to him talk and then thinking about everything that I see when I'm in the woods. And yeah, he's right. He's right. There's, you know, based on what he showed as being really good brood habitat, you just don't see it very often. Mm. So it was, his presentation was fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed that. And of course, I absolutely wore him out with questions. Good. During and after <laughs> his presentation. And Excellent. then Mike Chamberlain got up and spoke for about an hour to an hour and a half by the time he answered all of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about Again, you know, what he's been preaching on, so to speak, what he's been speaking on across the country and across the southeast about how we need to move the start date of our seasons back and start them later. And in doing that, how we should have some better nesting results hmm. from our hens. And so that was very informative as well. And That's awesome. You know, I again... I absolutely wore him out with questions. So, I mean, you guys, look, today is a perfect example. Anytime I get around someone like Dr. Marcus Lashley, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, Dr. Brett Collier, I've got questions. And when yep. they answer my questions, that sparks other questions for me. And <laughs> yeah, they're always leading. Yeah. Speaking of that, that is a great lead-in because yeah. we have Mike on the show today to talk about yeah. hunting, and guess what we ended up talking about? Biology. <laughs> <laughs> and everything, pretty much. So it's a pretty good long show with Mike, and we cover everything. But we do, I would say, at least 
half, if not majority, we actually talk hunting turkeys with Mike Chamberlain, which he doesn't get to talk about enough because he is a turkey hunter. Yeah, and I'll say it during the interview. Not going to say it now because it's just going to be repetitive for when you hear it, but I thought that Mike would be a fantastic guest to have on to talk about late season turkey hunting tactics and you guys will know why once we get into this interview yeah but he did not disappoint i mean from the hunting tips he gave and from the things that we can deduce or assumptions we can make about yeah the information he shared with us and how we can use that to help us late season to have more success this just this was a phenomenal interview in my opinion yeah well why don't we hop in there let's do this first let's jump in but i just want to say i'm just going to throw this out there 226 14 345 and no that's not an audible for the next offensive play we're running that's how many days hours minutes and seconds we are from opening day of spring turkey season in alabama 226 man well that sounds better than and that is 45 1353, which is till fall archery turkey opens. All right. Man. All right. Sounds good to me. Let's jump in let's and let's do it. Let's listen to Mike and you guys grab a pen and paper. You're going to love this one. We'll see you on the other see. side. Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are glad to tell you that we have on the line with us today Dr. Mike Chamberlain. And you guys listening by now have to know Mike, but if you don't, he is a wildlife biologist with the University of Georgia, and his spending, well, all right, so Mike will say this. He has his graduate students spending quite a bit of time in the woods studying wild turkeys for us to maybe help us learn a little bit more about them so we can reverse this general population decline that we're having around the country. But we thought Mike would be a great guest on our series that we're going to open up today on late season hunting tactics. And we thought Mike would be a good guest to have on just to give us, you know, a little bit of insight as to what generally these toms are doing late season. And maybe that'll help us have a little bit more success late season. So, Mike, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on and chat with us. I hope that things are going well for you. And, you know, I just saw you Saturday. Didn't get to spend a whole lot of time chatting with you, but it was good to see you nonetheless. So how are things in your world? Busy, busy. This is a busy time of year and field staff's on campus now. So everybody's trying to crunch data and summarize data and get information out to agencies and do their coursework. And if they're not in their you know, in classes anymore and they're writing or analyzing data, then then they're kind of in and out of my office quite a bit, which is good because I enjoy spending time with my students. It's, it's, um, it's one of the things about my job that I, that I truly enjoy. Uh, there's, there's some aspects that I don't, but, uh, but the student interactions is certainly one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Have you noticed any, like, are there more students interested in the wild turkey recently, or would you say it's about the same as it has been? You know, Cameron, that's a that's a good question. It's one that we have openly discussed, in fact, almost on a daily basis. But believe it or not, it is very difficult to find students that have any interest in turkeys. Wow. And 
I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. It, when you, it's easy to find technicians that want to work with trapping crews, and it's it's actually fairly easy to find master's students that that are that want to work on turkeys or you know that grab on to a project that you give them and really make it their own. But finding PhD students and, and postdoctoral researchers that that really want to study turkeys is I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's becoming very, very difficult to find those people. And I'm not sure why that is. I, I don't know if it's, you know, maybe turkeys aren't sexy enough, if you will. I don't know if it's just because, you know, in, in a lot of our society, turkeys have this kind of odd uh, perception in the, you know, in the public. They're stupid. They're, you know, it's the turkey, it's the bird that's on the the table at Thanksgiving and oh, it's kind of hard to work around some of that. And when you interact with students that are considering doing, you know, advanced postdoc, you know, advanced type graduate work, their interest is, is in things that are not Turkey centric. And I don't know, it, it's getting tough, man. It really is. We, we mm. talk about this amongst ourselves a lot because, you know, the, the students that are coming out of these graduate labs that are trained to work with turkeys and understand turkeys and landscapes, they, thrive in and and more importantly have a handle on kind of what's going on you know a pulse if you will not just with turkeys but the other species that live in those same environments you know those are the people that are populating our state agencies those are the people that are that are going to be decision makers you know in the future and it it is a little concerning to me that it is getting hard to find people that are really vested in turkeys because again those, those people are going to be the ones when i'm gone that are they're speaking up for the resource. So it, it's something we talk about for sure. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I would assume most of your students that are interested in turkeys are turkey hunters, at least in some capacity. Or do you have many that are, they're just genuinely interested in studying turkeys? <laughs> I, I have both. I, I have, okay. I'd say, I'd say most of my students are, are either passionate slash fanatical turkey hunters or, they they're certainly active turkey hunters and but i have i have and have had students in the past that just have a really strong interest in the bird um and they're fascinated with their behavior and their ecology and it's not that they you know or would be against turkey hunting it's just they don't they don't do the, the activity themselves but but they you know they're fully fascinated by the bird and they're vested in the you know in the interest of the bird moving forward so I'm, it's kind of all over the map but i'd say most yeah most are are turkey hunters and i like right now i have i have a lab full of turkey hunters and i have several of my students and one of my postdocs patrick now that you know i'd i'd consider to be fanatical turkey hunters like we are you know and that that's a good thing because then they can see it they can see the science from from both sides yeah, I assume that would take a little sacrifice as well, because if you're studying turkeys in the springs, probably a very important time. You may not get to hunt as much as if you weren't studying turkeys, maybe. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I remember those days when I was a student and it is it is tough because, you know, they're in the field tracking birds and doing the things that my field staff is required to do. And they're doing it during turkey season you know so their busiest time of the year is when they really want to be doing something other than than what they're doing but they work those few years and it pays off you know in the end yeah i can say this as a person that doesn't no longer has to do that in, in turkey hunt when they <laughs> when they want so <laughs> it's easy for me to say that 
Well, I'd promise you I would have been a total flunky as a student of yours if I had to actually do some work in the springtime. So, yeah, probably a good thing I never never did that. You'd be like, all right, where's Andy again? Yeah, you would probably wouldn't have lasted long on payroll. <laughs> I will promise you. I, I don't last on my payroll. I fire me every single spring. <laughs> Well, at least you know, army. you know, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. He, he would have had to tell me multiple times I wasn't allowed to track the gobblers with a 12 gauge in hand. That would have, <laughs> that would have, that would have probably gotten me nicks pretty fast. Yeah. That's, that's frowned upon for sure. Um, <laughs> well, how about a 20 gauge then? <laughs> yeah. No. Sub gauges no, uh, are all the rage. <laughs> yeah. I even, I remember days I went to great lengths to not, to not even, to not even, in fact, I've done this since I've been in academia. I, I haven't hunted any of the study sites that I've worked on. Yeah. It's just, I don't, I don't want the perception of conflict of interest. And, and I know oh, that yeah. people are sensitive to it and, and I am too. And that's, you know, I, I try not to mix the, you know, my pleasure of chasing birds with the fact that I, I may have some institutional knowledge, you know, on the site. So I just don't go there. Yeah. yeah. I'd probably be more concerned with the fact that I would go there and just get flat whipped and be like, I've got insider trading knowledge here and I can't even kill a turkey that way. Oh, well, well, well I've, I've been there. I've been there. We specifically went and tried to kill a bird back years ago that had a, that had a GPS unit on it that, it was one of the original prototypes, actually, the, the first prototypes that we deployed back years ago. And the only way to obtain the data from the unit at that time to make sure the unit was working was to recover the unit. And we had this this Tom that that we had marked, and and he had we had actually tried to to kill him several times. We had put a youth hunter on him that had a guide with him and and they kind of screwed up and and bumped the bird and then i put a very accomplished adult hunter on him and when i say put him i, I mean i i we went and tracked the bird and said that bird is right over there in the morning and that guy even bumped the bird and spooked him and so i actually went and tried to kill that bird myself and had full telemetry, everything. I mean, headphones on. I knew exactly where the bird was, and he kicked our tail all day long. Hmm. And it was it was really humbling. In fact, it was it was embarrassing what that bird did to us. And <laughs> the person that was with me was a, is is a very accomplished turkey hunter, and as, as you know, and I can do okay myself. And and it was we at the end of the day, I'll never forget we. As as an aside, that bird died of old age. I, I'm guessing we he was never killed, and we never obtained his GPS data. But um, but that bird, we set it against a tree. It was late, late in the afternoon, and laughed hysterically because he had he had just stomped us all day long, and we were within sight of that bird a number of times and never laid eyes on him. He pulled every trick. He backdoored us twice. I mean, anything you could draw up in your head, that bird did it. And it was really funny because I'm, you know, with the telemetry gear, I could, I was seeing it in my head and experience it in my, you know, in, in real time. And uh, it just goes to show you that sometimes they're just unkillable, whether, whether you have the technology or not. That's awesome. That that would be fun and humbling. You're right. So, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more turkey hunting. And so, you know, we, Cameron and I have been doing series throughout the summer and with the series what we've been doing is is having 
two or three different guests on to talk about the exact same topic. And Mm -hmm. we've been having a lot of fun with it. So we did one on woodsmanship. We did one on hind up gobblers. And we're starting this one on late season hunting tactics. And so you, like I said, really kind of, from what I know about you, you really kind of concentrate and spend your efforts on hunting turkeys late season because, well, you're out there preaching the the word about killing the dominant toms too early in the season and or at least us hunters killing the dominant toms too early in the season and well that's not your your approach that's not what you want to do so you choose to hunt them late season and so we thought you'd be a great guest to have on to cover that with us and I guess you know really maybe we kind of get the science part of this mixed in there as well so what I'll start out more on the science side. What are toms generally doing late season? And I guess, you know, that's obviously going to vary, you know, as you're you're talking late season across the country. But, sure. y- you know, you know where I'm going with this. So yeah, what- yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So basically, you know, the, the way I look at it, I, I kind of look at, at turkey, you know, behavior there of toms in three kind of three phases. You got that you've got that pre laying phase where they're super aggressive. Uh, a lot of times they have hens with them. This would be, you know, before hens start actively laying eggs and clutches gobbling is, is up and down, up and down, you know, from one day to the next, some days are good. Some days are not that, you know, that's, that's typically when a lot of seasons open across, you know, the country. Although as you both know that, there have been a number of recent changes, not just in the south, but other parts of the country to, to kind of delay the opener a little bit based on the, the science that's been around for, for decades. But, you know, that's that's one phase. And I, and I don't you know, I don't I don't personally do a lot of hunting during that phase, although in some cases, you you know, you end up having to. You know, we've all been on trips where you, you know, this year, for instance, I was out west and and just because of the latitude, you know, you're hunting in some areas where you've still got, you know, not a lot of reproductive activity going on, but, but that's one phase. And then, you know, I really like to start hunting from about the middle phase to the end, which is, you know, once laying starts, gobbling activity really ramps up. You, if you do see peaks in gobbling activity, it's typically coincides with peaks in laying. That would be, you know, second week of April, say here in parts of Georgia, end of first week of April, second week of April, a lot of gobbling, a lot of competition amongst toms because toms running out. Those hens are, you know, they're laying, so they're still receptive to breed, but they're about to be sitting on a nest, and at that point they're not receptive mm-hmm. until they either lose their nest or, or whatever. So that that's a hot time for me. I, You know, I've had a lot of success through the years in whatever state I was in, if, if you could time it then. And, and then, you know, where y'all are headed with this series, then then you go after that, and and it it can be a real crapshoot, as you both know. You know when you get when you get kind of into the incubation sequence, you get a you know a lot of your toms have either been disturbed or some of them have been have been killed at that point. The number of birds is is lower than it was early. The ones that are there have been educated. You see gobbling activity gets really volatile. In fact, I was just looking at a figure today that that one of my students sent me and you know dramatic day-to-day changes one day it's just off the charts 
they're you know they're choking themselves gobbling and the next day it's it's silent the next day it's silent the next day it's silent and then all of a sudden you get this this good day mm-hmm. uh and what's going on there is you've got hens that are that are not there anymore they're you know they're not receptive so uh your toms kind of go through this period where some of them their testosterone levels wane and they they start becoming much more you know sporadic in in how they're behaving and then you you see sometimes that maintain those high testosterone levels and they're you know you can still play with them a lot of times they're very difficult to you know to kill because they're experienced but but that's kind of i think what y'all when you when you're saying kind of later it's it's that kind of volatile period where it gets almost super hit and miss and and honestly i you know in my opinion from knowing what i know about turkeys it can be really frustrating during that late season period because you do have days and sometimes several days where it's just a you know it's like man there aren't any birds out here they're just they're not saying a word and then all of a sudden you get this day that is magical and in my experience when they are when they are willing to play the game later in the season you I've been pretty successful in, in killing birds then if I can get them you know to cooperate and, and play the game so I kind of look at it as yeah their biology is changing later there's fewer of them but if you can get on the the right bird who's still got elevated testosterone and he's still he's still in the game then then your success rate can be pretty good does that does the testosterone level fluctuate in them like on a daily basis yeah yeah. Okay. Basically, what happens in, in in a lot of game birds that use mating displays like turkeys use is they synchronize with each other, which makes sense. So, you know, you got this. Let's say you got a hundred toms in a population, and you don't want to be gobbling when your buddy's not. You know, it, when mm-hmm. your buddy is out there competing, you need to be competing with him. And and that's one of the reasons. And we've all experienced this. Hopefully. If you've been lucky as a turkey hunter, you've experienced those days when, you know, one bird lights up and the next thing you know, the gobble isn't even through the, you know, through the the vegetation around you when another bird's sounding off, another bird's sounding off. And they they tend to synchronize like that. And there's been there's been all kinds of research on game birds showing that, that, you know, once once they start gobbling early spring, they do become synchronized. And part of that is why you see this if you look at some of the gobbling data that we've put out you see this kind of uh this kind of slow ratcheting up if you will of gobbling from say march 1 march 10 march 15 march 20 and there's just this consistent increase part of that is not only are a lot of your birds active but all you know your birds are starting to synchronize with each other so they're gobbling together if you will at, at a population level and that's you know, and you see that with western birds. Y'all have done that too. You know, you go out and hunt Merriams or hunt, you know, Rios, and they're quite some distance from each other, but they always gobble at each other, and that that's part of that. You know, that's part of that synchronization that you see with Easterns as well. Interesting, and you know, I guess if you think about it, that's probably not very different from human beings. You know, our testosterone levels will vary day to day. Some days, I'm, yeah, yeah you know plenty of energy yeah, sure. and ready to roll and next day i just want to take a nap <laughs> yeah and, and some of the same things that influence us you know if you, if you think about a, a tom that's out there and um the same things that influence our our hormonal levels stress poor nutrition 
you know, disturbance, uh, fright, fear, you know, those things operate on turkeys just like they do humans and other species. And so that's, you know, that's why you get situations where you, you know, you, you quote unquote booger a bird up, you know, you, you spook him or something and he, well, the fear factor sets in for some and some don't seem to pay any attention to, you know, to fearful interactions, but, but, you know, you think about toms that are that are stressed or diseased or uh, go through nutritional stress periods when they're, you know, when they're really actively breeding and they're not eating a lot. And, and then all of a sudden they and, and we see this in the data. If you look when incubation really gets going and a lot of hens are out there and they're on the nest, you, you go days where birds don't say a word like it's just silent. And that makes sense. You know, they've been going, they've been through the grind for weeks and weeks and weeks now, and they're stressed. And when the competition declines, they shut up and that's the way they're supposed to function. Now, interestingly on, on some of the, you know, like the data on, on some of the non-hunted sites that we have, it's not as clear as it is on the hunted sites. It's a little muddier, you know, which makes sense. You know, hunting is just an additional form of stress for a turkey, so it makes sense that they behave a little differently when they're hunted versus not. Yeah. Have That's you, Cameron, did you have a question? Well, I got plenty, but if you already have one, go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna go because I'm old and I can't remember anything. So you're young and you can remember stuff, so I'm going to butt in front of you. So are there... Have you found is probably the better way for me to ask that ask this question. Have you found that there are some tactics that you've employed from time to time that have been able to turn those dull days, those quiet days, into some sort of uh, you know, action packed yeah. day? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know more recently. Um, I've tried to use some of the some of the science to help, and it and it has it has helped in some ways. And that is, you know, you got to understand when when some of these toms go through the breeding season, it's starting to get late. They're 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 transitioning from you know I'm in peak breeding condition and I'm really really active and aggressive to I'm not as much. Not saying they won't gobble or copulate or whatever, but they're just not as active as they were, say, a month before. And at that point, and y'all you have seen this too, where you may see toms even start grouping back up, where you mm-hmm. you had a couple of loners on a site, and now all of a sudden there's a pair and, and one off by himself, and they just start behaving differently. And what I try to do then is, is try to figure out where they're headed, where are places that they know they can interact with hens, if a hen's going to be there, they can they can easily get to that place, check it out, see if she's there, and if she's not, they can leave. If she is, they can they can assess her receptivity, and if she's not receptive, they can move on. So you 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 tend to see you know toms will will do that, and the other thing you'll see is their movements start to decline. They they start kind of shrinking their home ranges a little bit. And if you think about it, I, I try to think about, you know, from a, a hunting standpoint, if, if you're the run and gun kind of guy, it's hard to run and gun a bird that's shrinking his home range. If he's not using as much space as he was, then the space he is using, he is he is intimately familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we see as birds transition from spring into summer. They actually, they almost, they don't really 
per se move their range. They just dramatically shrink it. So they they kind of shift a little bit from where they were in the heart of spring. They don't go far, but they don't move much either. And and if you're hunting late season, you're capturing that transition. So you got to understand that some of these birds aren't moving much. So I, I've personally found that scouting is, is absolutely critical. Trying to figure out where, you know, when they fly down, instead of you trying to chase them, try to figure out where they're headed. And that, as y'all y'all dealt with this, if they're not gobbling a lot, it can be really hard, at least for Easterns, to do that. It can be tough to figure out where they're headed. But but if you can, um, and you can uh, you can understand where they're at, you know, later in the afternoon, we see most most hens that are incubating when they take a recess. When, in other words, when they take a break, it's between eleven and about four. The pulse, the kind of the pulse of that is from about noon to three. So what that means is, you know, you're you're a tom that's still interested and you're still you're still wanting to find receptive hens. Where would you go to interact with a hen that disappears for most of the day? Well, you see her the same couple of places because she's taking a break and she's there for an hour or so and she leaves. Well, you know, these these toms may not know that's the same hen per se, but they know that they're encountering hens, and if they're encountering hens, they're going to go back to that place. So that's that's something I kind of lean lean on a little bit too. Is okay, where have I seen hens, singleton hens? You know, where have I seen hens on this property hanging out, showing up in the early afternoon? And if you think about it, how many of us are out there in the early afternoon if the hunting sucked at daylight? Yeah, not many. Yeah, that's, it's and it's tough. It's a tough sell. In fact, when you when you asked me about this podcast i started like i started laughing at when i listened to your message up I, I got a good chuckle because last year three of the most frustrating hunts i've ever had i had at the end of the season here in georgia and it was because i knew birds were on this property and we literally hunted for days and did not hear i think we heard like four gobbles in like three full hunts mm. and I, I remember thinking to myself i know what i need to do and I even talked to my buddy about it. I was like, I, we know what we need to do. We need to be out here in the afternoon. We need to be, you know, paying attention and glassing a little bit and easing around and trying. And both of us looked at each other like the hell of that. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, this is miserable, man. It's, it's just tough to keep grinding it out. But, but anyway, I try to figure out places where if I were a Tom, where could I go lay eyes on a hen for a while? And sometimes those places are, you know, going to be from 12 to 3, and they're going to be incubating hens that are taking a break. Mm-hmm. So how long after turkey season in the southeast do they typically keep going on an average year? Is that something we know? Like, I mean, yeah. I know, you know, you'll see one strutting in July or whatever, but, like, actively breeding and seeking hens on average, how long do they usually keep rolling? We kind of... We, we use a, the gobbling data as a proxy for that, Cameron. You know, I mean, yeah. we, kind, we kind of think of it as, well, if they're still gobbling, then they're still, they're still in the game, if you will. And it really just depends on, on hunting pressure. On our sites that receive a ton of pressure, think, you know, public, uh, close to a major city, unlimited access, you know, no quotas, nothing, just straight out come and hunt. We see that by the end of the season, there's very, very little gobbling. Um, Whereas on lighter hunted sites and and a lot of private sites, you may see gobbling 
way, way, way after the season. In fact, some of the data I was looking at the other day from a site, a, a, a privately owned site that is hunted, but it's just not hunted heavily. There was gobbling in the June, in the early June. And, and we see this on on the non-hunted site that we're working on in South Carolina. We see that as well. In fact, we see as much gobbling in May as we do in March. Um, on the Savannah River side? Yep, yep as much in May as March. And it's it's almost a perfect bell curve where you, you get March is, is strong. April is off the charts, which is, you know, peaks and in nesting, initial nest on that site. And then May looks like March. And then about the first week of June, it really starts tailing off and then it's over. Because, mm. so I assume you've seen Tennessee's changes for this coming season. I have, yep. So we will be... We can legally keep hunting until May 27th or 8th, I think, 28th, I believe. It's it's, it's basically Memorial Day, I think, yeah. Yeah, so we will be the latest closing season in the Southeast now, by by my count at least. And so, you know, I hear a lot of people complaining about that. Well, why didn't they just hack two weeks off or whatever? But do you think there still will be huntable turkeys those last two weeks of season? Yeah, but it's going to be tough. I mean, you know this. It, it it gets hard. You know, it gets if you're in the south and you're at the end of May, it's hot. I don't care where you are, and it's yeah. it's buggy. And you know that from a from a reproductive standpoint, that is late. I mean, it, the the percentage of toms in the population that would be expected to be behaving, you know, as we want them to behave, is going to be limited that late. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just now, granted, you your nesting season is is a little later than most of my sites here in the deep south, but but I'll really be curious to see. We we have a we have a project about to start in Kentucky that's going to be kind of southwest Kentucky, and we'll have a, a ton of gobbling data collected on that site as well as reproductive data and all the other stuff that we're doing. And I'll be curious to see what the kind of the variation in gobbling is compared to some of you know some of the more southerly sites if you look at nesting data you know obviously as you go farther north the, you know the nesting is is later but it's not as dramatically later as you would think from say Tennessee to you know in northern Alabama or Tennessee in the central Kentucky I mean we're talking days here not weeks so I'll be curious to see what the gobbling data look like in in that Kentucky, you know, around that Kentucky site in mid to late May, which should help inform some of that, you know, the question you just asked. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me, I guess that I thought up, am I correct that hens, they incubate for 28 days? Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. About that. Yep. So our average incubation date, nest incubation date is April 25th. So if that's the case, the last week of Tennessee season should be the average for when most of your poults are hatching, which yeah. would be, that could be really interesting if you got a hen with poults walking by while you're trying to work a, a gobbler into gun range. Well, and you, and you will have, you know, you will have, you will have poults on the ground by before that season ends, just mm-hmm. because of the early pulse. You know, we, we do get some early, you know, nesting birds that are, you know, well before that peak. And and actually, a lot of those hens are successful. The, the earlier nests are typically more successful. They have a higher probability of being successful than later nests. So the other thing that we know happen, you know, happens in turkey flocks is that you know dominant hens are those that they're the first nesters. 
because they have preferential access to dominant, you know, to males. So they they breed first and they nest first, which is is common in in species that have dominance hierarchies like turkeys do. So it, it will be interesting. And you know, you always get reports. I, I hear reports every year of, uh, hey man, I you know it, it's last week of turkey season in Georgia, and a guy you know puts a video on Instagram or something of a poult walking around. <laughs> You know, um, that he was calling and here comes a pole kiki and at him or something like that. But that it shouldn't be super common in, you know, in in Tennessee. But you will you are going to have people reporting poults that are that are coming from those early nesters. Yeah. Well, that's what I was kind of thinking. That's going to happen more prevalent now. But I mean, last day of season here this past season called up a gobbler and he was absolutely screaming it coming in i mean it just just like how you want it and scared him off and enjoyed it but i i think they'll keep doing it you know i mean it, i i just i honestly like when turkey season ends for whatever reason i i don't keep going out and calling them up and stuff i just i stop but now i can do it later and kind of see how it's gonna go <laughs> yeah and you know and i understand when i saw the when i saw the regulations changes you know i got quite a few questions from people on social media about that and you know it, it is late and 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 honestly you know i mean with states implementing changes all over the country you know some states are going to do what tennessee did they're they're going to they're going to take some opportunity off the front end and they're going to add it to the back end and and i understand the logic behind that they want to they want to give us opportunity to be out there rather than just take and and yeah. that's going to require us to adapt or you know if we if we want to continue to participate we may have to participate differently and and I, and i get the criticisms as well too you know I, i've hunted in the deep south my entire life and i've hunted you know all the way until the last day of the season many many years and it can be tough like we've talked about it can be hard physically it can be hard mentally um but it can also be incredibly rewarding like you were just saying sometimes you get on the right bird and you know i've killed some birds towards the end of the season i remember i killed a bird in louisiana one year it was i think it was the next to last day of the season and it was miserably hot and that bird came in and he was gobbling so hard that he, he we you've all heard birds like that just literally double gobble triple gobble choking him just yeah. gobble 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 and i almost I almost, I'll say almost with tongue in cheek, I almost felt like not shooting the bird, but I shot him. And he must have gobbled 300 times. I mean, it, and I've said this on podcasts before, you know, no, very few birds actually gobble as much as we think they did. But this bird was insane. I mean, he gobbled so hard. And, it, and now, you know, 30 years later, I look at some of the gobbling data we have, and we do see days with just insane amounts of gobbling at the very end of the season. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. talking ridiculous amounts. Just one day, for whatever reason. Last effort by the males. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe somebody gets fired up and and or somebody encounters a you know a, a receptive hen or or whatever, and he starts talking and everybody starts talking. And you get this these days and. They can be magical for sure, just like they can be early season. Yeah. Is there a certain, because late season you're talking, especially in the south or, you know, Texas or Oklahoma even, a lot of these states, heat, is there a certain temperature where it obviously affects gobbling and turkey activity? Well, yes and no. It What we've seen with the gobbling data is 
it's kind of dependent on the departure from average. So, you know, in general, you see gobbling decreases, you know, as it gets warmer. So as it, as it's getting warmer, if you catch some cooler days, you, you would expect it, it to improve, you know, whereas, you know, early you get, you know, these nice days that, that come along and they, they, they increase their gobbling. And then, you know, mid season, you catch these, you know, these, these kind of cool mornings when it's otherwise muggy and hot and it, mm-hmm. it, it, it gets better. The thing with turkeys is they don't, and you know this, if you, you know, if you've ever cleaned a turkey, you know, a few hours after you, you killed it, they're, they just, hot. they, they're, yeah, God, they're so hot. They're full yeah. of heat and they, and their plumage just holds heat in. So they, they don't like to be hot. So when it gets really warm, they're finding cooler areas in their range. And we, we've seen this clearly with broods. We haven't, we haven't really teased this out with adults, although there has been some research on Rio showing this pretty clearly that, that adults will go to areas that are, you know, four, four plus degrees cooler and, and hang out during the hot parts of the day. And, and, you know, we all know that Easterns do that too, you know? Yeah. That that Mm -hmm. passes common sense test in my mind. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, these shady hardwood, riparian areas, cooler, damper um, places where, you know, if if I were out conducting work in the, in the woods in a pine forest and it got to be 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning and it was sweltering, you know, where would you go to cool off? You'd go down, go <laughs> go to a bottom, you know, find some shade and, and mm. some areas near water and, and cool off a little bit. And that's, I mean, that's what the telemetry data shows they do. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, they're piping hot every time you clean them. So I mean, and I assume, I mean, I assume gobbling takes a good bit of energy. I mean, if I was screaming that loud, it would wear me down pretty quick, especially if it's hot. Yeah, I mean, you would think for sure. You know, you would <laughs> think that. I mean, that is an activity, particularly since it's often coupled with with drumming and strutting. And yeah, you know, that's not something that uh, you know, that's not something you'd want to do when it's stifling hot, but. You know, and it, y'all have probably seen this too. I mean, I've watched birds that displayed when it was super hot, and I've seen I've seen Rios stand out in you know broad daylight when it was mid nineties and strut, but yeah, but Osceola's they too. yeah, but they didn't they you know they didn't do it for a long period of time, or maybe I didn't allow them to do it, but <laughs> I think I think you know the, the the data pretty clearly shows for turkeys in general that that high heat is not a good thing for them. They, they can, a lot of people think, you know, well, they'd have trouble tolerating cold. Turkeys are really resilient when it comes to cold. When it comes to hot, they're going to go find a cooler spot. Yeah. When late see back to Dr. Chamberlain, the hunter, let's say you, you go travel hunting and you're there and you know, you're well into late season, way past incubation date and you know, things are warming up. Are you changing any of your hunting strategies, calling specifically or movement? You know, I know you said afternoons, it sounded like would be a better time to be hunting, but do you call more or less move more or less anything like that? I, I don't tend to call a whole lot regardless, but I, I catch myself and I, and I'm not honestly sure whether I mean to do this or whether I just do it. And I don't know if it, if it helps either. I kind I, I tend to see myself calling less later in the year. And I think, and I've sat there and contemplated why. And I think part of the reason is I'm, I'm gun shy that 
you know, the birds that I'm hunting have heard it all. And, mm-hmm. and I'm trying, I'm trying to be subtle. I'm trying to be quiet. I'm trying to, you know, mimic these contentment type calls, these, you know, purrs and really soft clucks and, and not overdo it and, and try to sound as much like just a turkey that's out feeding and doing her thing than one that's looking for love, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's helped, but, you know, I, I tend to be more of a subtle caller anyway, although sometimes I get out of that shell and get loud and obnoxious. But I, I did notice this year, even out west, when I was hunting, I, I caught myself really going longer periods of time. And, in fact, one of the guys that was hunting with me, I'd never hunted with this guy before. We we ended up meeting each other and, and knew, had some mutual friends, and he I'd already killed, I, I didn't have a tag. I'd killed my, I'd filled my tag. So I was just sitting with him and calling, you know, having fun. And, and he was like, man, you call quiet. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm afraid to call loud. Cause you know, these, these birds have heard it. And it, you know, it's, I don't, I don't want to be anything other than just a, a hen walking around doing her thing. Not really, you know, yapping, looking for attention. And I don't know. I, it just tends to be my strategy. Yeah. I mean, I assume the hens, if they're most likely incubating a nest, they're probably not calling as much either because, I mean, they don't want to draw attention to that area, right? Exactly. They, they have no motivation to call. Yeah, I, I mean, mean if you, the last thing they yeah. want to do is make a bunch of noise and call things to the area they're incubating in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And, if you, it, and if you look, you know, most hens, if they're incubating and they and you see them and they're out, walking around they're within 100 150 yards of that nest now there's obvious exceptions i'm I'm speaking in generalities across hundreds and hundreds of data sets but she's not far from that nest give her let's just say she's a fairly quick walk to that nest so she has no motivation to do other anything other than just go there feed defecate preen herself dust maybe and and take care of herself you know she's been sitting there for 23 hours and she's mm. she's ready for a break and so she she if she's calling at all you know it's very very quiet and and again I, and i've just noticed this myself if you know if they see other hens and y'all you've seen this both of you've seen this if they see other hens and they're alone you know you'll start if you're close enough to them you'll you'll start hearing these these kind of quirky sometimes contentment type calls or inquiries i'll call them you know hey what you know what's going on kind of thing real subtle but if they're just standing there by themselves they're a lot of times are silent so i tend to try to mimic that and just if i'm somewhere where i think you know what there have been hens in this area they've been walking through this plot i've seen a hen here between two and five o'clock three times i'm going to go sit up you know in this area and i'm just going to try to mimic her when I do call, it's going to be really subtle and quiet, and I'm going to keep my head on a swivel and try not to move much and, and see if he you know, if he comes and plays a game, understanding that a lot of times he's not going to gobble to tell you he's there. He's just mm-hmm. going to show up. You know, you may hear him drumming, or you may you know, see him, or you may, you know, I had, I had one bird one time that, that came in, and I mean, I just heard him walking in the leaves, you know. He never gobbled. He never strutted, drummed. He never made a sound. Now that's not as sexy, obviously, as hunting them earlier when they're when they're <laughs> roaring. But you know, if 
that's if that's when you're out there and you have the opportunity that I mean that's that's what we're going to that's what we're going to experience in some of these areas if we're hunting late. Yeah. So those hens that are incubating the nest, they're obviously not receptive to breeding with a tom, and I guess that tom is just cruising those areas where he is normally or has in the past seen hens and you know he sees one and he's gonna you know since he doesn't have a cell phone and can't say hey what's up you in the mood i guess he's just yeah, he's gonna, gonna check her out yeah yeah he's gonna yeah. check her out see if she's receptive at all because he doesn't know if she's receptive or not without well and yeah and the thing is when they when they lose their clutch you know a lot of hens will copulate again they, they'll they'll become receptive and start copulating even if they've stored sperm from their previous copulation so it behooves him to go check her out if for no other reason than to see if she's receptive and given the amount of nest loss we see in turkeys in the south you know it's an 80 percent chance give or take that she (laughs) that at some point she is going to lose her nest so if you're a tom you go check her out if you see her it's worth your it's worth your effort to go check her out yeah and you don't have to raise hell to do it, you know. I mean, you don't have to gobble your head off if you're looking at her, or you know, with good, good reasonable certainty that you're going to run across these single birds. Then all you really need to do is be in that area where you can keep an eye on it and go from there. When the experts on Facebook have told me that nothing satisfies a gobbler more than going and stomping all the eggs out of the nest, so then he gets to breed again. I've 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 heard that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Um, How many nests are we losing to that? That that is one of the most nonsensical things I've ever. <laughs> and I, I've heard a lot of nonsense in my life, but that I I get that every year, and I try to be as polite as I can about it. And because some people that ask me will legitimately say, somebody told me this. Is this is there any accuracy to this? And I right. No, no, there's, you know, no, there's not. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of those wives tales that, that it's going to die hard, you know. <laughs> it's just stuck around a while. It has. Every year it rears its head. I, I had a client tell me the other day that that's why the quail are gone, because all the turkeys eating all the quail. So oh, yeah. That yep, was the I get that as well. Now. Same with grouse, same with pheasants. Um yeah. I've never uh, found one in their craw before, though, like when I've cleaned them, which is, you know, interesting. It's, it's, it is. It's ironic, right? That, the, you know, <laughs> if it were that common, you think you would see it with all of the, the hundreds of thousands of pictures of turkey crops floating around the Internet. I've never seen a quail in one. <laughs> but it could happen, I guess. This is, <laughs> so yeah, next spring, and, I'm going to kill a turkey, cut open the crop, and put my mounted quail in there. There you go. Yeah, and, and put the picture on the internet, and I'll be sure to tag you on it, Mike. What What you need to do, you need to. And I'm not going to. say I'll say this, <laughs> but I say it tongue in cheek. What you need to do is, you know, we know it's nonsense. They couldn't eat adults, but they, you know, what you need to do is find a, a mounted quail chick. Yeah, and then you, yeah. then you could say, you know, that well, they're eating the the chicks or the broods or the eggs. But yeah, they're. I get this a lot from people in the Northeast that that are concerned with grouse. You know that that turkeys are directly competing with grouse, and ergo they're destroying rough grouse nests. Um, 
and I, I hear it with quail as well. And I've even been asked about pheasants and, and turkeys too, you know, out in Rio country. And in fact, it wasn't long ago, I got an inquiry from someone asking that. And he was legitimate. He, he legitimately had the concern. He was like, you know, I've, I've heard about this. It sounds bizarre and, you know, like it can't be true, but is there evidence that turkeys or pheasants would his was the reverse he's like you know i got a lot of pheasants in my area and the turkey population is just plummeting could it be these pheasants that are going in and destroying these turkey nests and i just you know had to say no don't no (laughs) evidence for that happening yep yeah so have you personally tried and if you have have you had any luck with trying with actually gobbling on those days where it's very quiet late season have you had any luck you know kind of getting the gang fired up or getting one fired up at that point and being able yep, to have i one? have yep i have i've i've tried it a number of times and it's only worked a handful that i can remember but when it did work it the scenario was i i started either me or just me and a partner started doing some pretty excited you know, hen calls that would not be what you typically would hear, you know, later in the nesting season, you know, really excited, cutting, cackling, and then, you know, throw a gobble at the end of that and, and maybe do it again, you know, or even again, just something to try to, you know, force, essentially force him. I, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I've got a gobble type thing. And, and I've, again, I've had that work. I'm, I'm trying to sit here and think if I've ever actually killed a bird after doing that late. I've killed birds early for sure. Um, I don't recall actually if I closed the deal on any of those. I remember one. I remember one several years ago here that did that. And it was, re- it was super late in the season, really very late. And I had no idea the bird was even there. And I honestly was just kind of piddling around and thought, well, what could it hurt? You know, we've all been there. What what could it hurt? Right. And, you know, he cut me off and he was 150 yards. And I actually ended up playing with that bird for a couple of hours. And I never knew he was there. And this was in the afternoon as well. And he just, I, I guess I just got to him and he just couldn't. It, you know, it elicited a forced response and he and he actually ended up playing around for a while and I was able to, to end up with a hunt that was really enjoyable minus the harvest you know and uh, and he actually ended up gobbling pretty good to you know given that he was dead dead silent before that mm-hmm. um, and I actually think I and I thought back about that hunt a number of times I think he knew he I don't think he had any experience with where I came at him from with with hens in other words i think the way i when i got into the point where i sat up i think he was already at the point where we've been talking about where he had interacted with some hens or had been interacting with hens and for all i know there could have been a hen over there i never heard her but the way he behaved as i was trying to get around him twice led me to believe that he was following a hen or that he was keeping tabs on a hen because his move, I didn't seem to be dictating his movements at all. He seemed to be following somebody else. And when I would get up and move around, it was almost like she was avoiding me. And mm-hmm. for a bird that was incubating, that would have made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Just speculation, How... but that's what I've thought since that day. Yeah, yeah. How likely 
late season is a Tom to engage in a fight with another Tom. I mean, I see him so often late season doing what you said, which is grouping back up. But I guess that Mm -hmm. hierarchy is still always going, even if it's late summer and they're still trying to group back up. They're they're still jockeying for position, aren't they? Yeah, I I think, well, to a much less degree than than earlier because – you know, is they're they're so less aggressive later because again that that testosterone level has kind of waned and and you know in a lot in a lot of these birds later and you know this it's almost impossible to elicit a response from them. I mean, you can be sitting yeah. there looking at them and trying to get them to gobble and or strut or anything, and it's almost like they're just they're like, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm done. For this year and no color to them and you know the heads and yep. necks or yeah yep yep and those birds you know in those cases i that's a tough sell because at that point you know he's moved into his summer pattern at that point breeding season's over and you know the other thing you you, you see with turkeys is as soon as turkey season as soon as the breeding season's over they 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 well they're continuous molters so they they molt you know, all year, but a lot of the molting occurs in the summer. So mm-hmm. in the when the breeding season ends, molting season kicks in. So like right now, you know, the past couple of months, turkeys have been replacing feathers in this kind of sequence along these tracks on their bodies. And that's why, you know, you walk around in the in the summer and you see wing feather, you know, you find a wing feather here in the road or you see a yeah. spot where they've been dusting and there's three or four contour feathers there. And, and that's why. So, you know, w- when a, when a turkey decides to molt breeding season's over, you know, so that, and without going in, 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 in the weeds, you know, the bottom yeah. line is molting is a, is a really tough process. I mean, it's hard on them. They, they, they have to get, they have to have a lot of resources to replace those feathers and and when you start losing feathers you have to have protein to replace them and so you know in their world when they enter into that phase they've moved beyond the breeding phase Mm-hmm. they're pretty well back in that survival mode at that point yep yeah when they start getting with buddies in the summer you know that's when it, that's essentially what they're saying is you know it's over for for me i'm going to sit around with my pals and go safety in numbers and and it's from a breeding perspective, it's pretty much over. Can you still kill them? Sure, but your strategy needs to be not be not be you know breeding. It needs to be resource acquisition. You know where are they going to to find these resources that they need? Understanding that their their entire behavior just changed. They went from trying to seek attention and and be gaudy and pretty and iridescent to I'm about to start losing a bunch of those feathers and I need resources to to replace them. Yeah. Do most of the toms end up getting with other toms pretty yeah. soon after? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, obviously some exceptions, but yeah, most of them end up in as as you see these little small. They're either in pairs or threes, and uh, of course you see some singles still, you know, hanging around. But yeah, most of them will end up at least with a buddy. And we don't. We're we're looking at this now. We we I admittedly I haven't done a lot of work looking at what happens after the breeding season because you know as turkey hunters we're so fixated on that time. But we have the data to really tease out some of this stuff. And 
and from a management perspective, it, it's not really likely relevant at all. But, you know, just from a, a behavioral perspective, it's really interesting to me is, you know, who are these birds that are hanging around together? Are, are they brothers? Are they not related? Who, you know, where did they come from? that that type of thing that really interests me although i understand people say what the hell is that going to do to to reverse this decline and and likely nothing but it you know i'm interested in turkeys in general all aspects of them and sometimes the the questions that really get my interest are not just how do we fix this it's okay why are they doing that like you know and who is that do they know each other you know did they spend time all spring together or they did they just end up in the same food plot one (laughs) one may yeah. afternoon and say hey you know let's let's do this kind of thing and want to molt so. together <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you know if you think about it you never see tom's fight in the summer and i've even you know i've caught i used to i used to trap a bunch in the summer and i've caught a bunch of toms in the summer and they they're they're so calm and passive around each other yeah they'll you know, they'll always rankle each other at some point. But I mean, you watch them when they come to bait sites and you watch them hanging around, you know, I, I remember these three Toms standing in a road one time in Mississippi and they were just as calm. I mean, these are three big guys too. And they were just as calm as they could be. And they were preening and, and one of them dusted for a while and they were bugging as they were coming towards me. And they were just, they were just as calm as they could be. And I remember, I remember, I, at the time, I just wanted them to get up there so I could catch them. But in, in a year since, I thought, you know, when did you ever see three toms, you know, in the spring that would have done that? I mean, it would have yeah. been a free-for-all, you know, strutting and raising hell with each other, and they couldn't have cared less. You know, it was July, and they were they were thinking completely differently, you know. No different than a lot of other species like, you know, deer that are in bachelor groups in the summer, and they're passive around each other, and then suddenly they, you know, their arch enemies come rut. Yeah. yeah. That, that actually would be interesting, especially like in an unhunted turkey population. Like, do the toms that were together in this summer, do they end up back together next summer? Or do they just, like you said, run into another random gobbler and end up, you know, hanging with him? That, that actually would be pretty fascinating to know if they seek each other back out. <laughs> well, we, we have all of those data now. We, we actually, we actually have all the, just recently, in fact, ironically today i just got some of the genetics data back from this year from all of our birds but we now i mean we have the data across a a broad number of sites to start answering questions like that really more in-depth questions about sociality and and relatedness and who these birds are and who their parents are and where you know do they have common ancestors and if they do who are they where did they come from so did they come from the next flock over five flocks down the road you know that those types of questions and to to your point what did if they end up together in the summer did they spend time together before or not if they're spring you know if it's spring and they're standing around strutting together are they related to each other or are they not and if they are are they are they brothers are they father son are they cousins do they have the same mom i mean those are the types of questions where the technology is now at that we can that we can get at some of these questions and and honestly uh the next three or four years is going i mean we we have so much information and some of it is is really complex but we will i mean we'll we'll break it down and make it digestible but we're we're just so far ahead of where we were a few years ago 
with this bird. We just, we, I feel like sometimes, you know, we're, we, we're not working fast enough, but we're working as fast as we can. Yeah, definitely. So I've got a, a question for you that is, is somewhat tied to something that we, that you talked about Saturday and I actually asked you a question about, or I maybe, maybe it was, I just made a comment about, and the comment that I made was that it seemed like the last several years that in Alabama, we have not had kind of that late season surge in gobbling activity and, you know, that that four, five, six day period of time where it seems like every Tom is lonely and ready to run into a call and die. And, you know, you in your presentation Saturday, you put a slide up that showed how, well, I think it showed the the median incubation period for that particular study. And mm-hmm. then it showed when those, or when hens were, were actually going and, and incubating. And so that period of time that the hens were incubating seems to be getting further and further, pushed further and further later, later, later. into the year. Yep. Yeah. And so... Yep. You know, I, I asked the question or made the statement, you know, is that possibly why we're not hearing birds gobble late season? And I'd always, or, you know, in my mind, a typical turkey hunter who's not a, a scientist or biologist, you know, I try to come up with my own reasoning for things and as as to why these birds do what they do. And I've always just kind of passed it off in my head as, well, you know, they've still got jennies with them because the jennies are just not as likely to, to actually nest and so they're hanging around these toms longer, you know, throughout uh, the season further. But is it, in your opinion, is it both? Is it maybe Jenny's or is it these hens that did that did start a nest that had a nest destroyed coming back? I mean, it, what are your thoughts there? Is it primarily just those hens that are that have nested that are, you know, had a nest destroyed that are coming back that are keeping these toms from necessarily needing to gobble? Yeah, I don't. I don't know, Andy. And the data I showed just for the listening audience that, that couldn't see them, but basically I, what I was showing was, you know, data on dates of nest initi- initiation from, you know, so when are these birds starting and when are they stopping? And and I was making the the point that it that the data clearly showed now that we're in a period, at least in the deep south, where most of our populations are nesting across, you know, four months. Um, you know, we're seeing nesting activity starting very late March, just a little bit, uh, really get rolling in, in April, peak in mid to late April, depending on the state and the, the, the time, you know, the year. And then instead of it just stopping, it's just going on and on and on. And it, it's taking weeks after peaks in incubation for the process to, to end. In, in other words, we've got hens that are incubating nests in April, and that same hen will try her second nest in the, you know, the late June or something like that. And and we didn't used to see that. We, when I was a student and I was studying turkeys, you go back and look at data from the 80s or 90s. And nesting season was this pretty short time where and part of that was they were more hatched, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, a greater percentage of nest hatched back then. So a lot of your hens were not going to try again because they had a brood with them. 
um, consistent with the declines in productivity that we've seen since the 80s and 90s. But uh, the other thing that that was part of the discussion that I, I gave was was the potential that that we're disrupting the breeding process in this bird. And you know, a lot of us don't want to talk about that. And and I get soundly chastised on social media whenever I bring this up. You know, we know that in a number of species, not just turkeys, that us going out there and hunting them, particularly when the hunting activity is in these really strong pulses, think opening day local WMA, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere, people everywhere, that these pulses and disturbance can alter reproduction. We know, Science has shown that for a number of years in a bunch of critters. Well, the data show it pretty clearly with turkeys, that when you open hunting season, things slow down. In other words, you know, breeding is just ramping up and it's going crazy and birds are copulating and they're laying and all of a sudden the season opens and the whole process slows down, which is the data you were, you know, you were referencing that it appears that things just slow down. And, and we think that's because as it is in other species that some of your, your, your dominant, you know, attractive toms are being killed. The hens are slowing the process down to make sure they, they choose the right toms to breed with. Ergo, that slows her down a little bit, takes her a little longer to produce a you know to produce her clutch, takes her a little longer to, to re-nest if she tries again. And, and you kind of factor that across a population through time. And it's not the only explanation, but my hypothesis is it's part of the explanation as to why we've seen these changes in nesting activity and to your original question yes if you've got hens that are in all varying stages of reproduction you've got some hens that are incubating some hens that have hatched some hens that have quit and aren't doing it anymore um, and you've got some segment of your toms in a lot of cases the aggressive vocal ones that are either dead or they've change their behavior Mm -hmm. then these days like you say that i distinctly recall myself are getting fewer and farther between late and you know late if depending on the hunting pressure and it could be because of that to some degree that you know we we've changed the way we kind of chase this bird we've changed the, the the amount of activity is higher the amount of pressure is higher the demand is higher. The supply is lower. Um, could we more be efficient. disrupting? Yeah, yeah. We're maybe you know more greater efficiency, greater technology, all day hunting. And we could go on and on and on. No smoking gun, just a bunch of just a bunch of guns. And and part of that presentation I gave is okay. What is that? What is that doing? Is it doing anything? Well, the data suggests that yeah, it 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 could be part of this slowing down if you will and if if it is then that's part of the explanation as to why we're seeing these changes in gobbling activity and 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 how these this bird behaves because it's having to change the way it behaves to adjust to a risk and that risk is not just us but our activities you know on the landscape and and am i am i right i don't know but i'm willing to ask the question and 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 hopefully, it, you know, we get the data we need, and we are. We're collecting the data we need to understand this process. It just takes a little time. Yeah. 
And I, you know, I guess as far as hunting purposes go, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if a Tom has three jennies or he's got two mature hens that lost their nest and one jenny hanging out with him. To me, he's not gobbling and he's harder to kill. It doesn't matter, yeah. you know, what the situation is. It, it is what it is. But, you know, the the fact that we hunters can be contributing to this pushing back of the nesting cycle for hens is you know is is concerning and 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 i don't and i don't look at it as a hunter issue at all right i look at i look at it as as not it's not us it's just the the activity it's the disturbance it's the you know what's going on in the environment and and you 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 clearly can see and and I, i don't want anyone to think I would point a finger at a, at a turkey hunter because I'd be looking myself in the mirror. Sure. It, it's an, it's an activity thing, but you clearly see it in the gobbling data. And, and I mentioned this Saturday, it doesn't matter if you open the season, March 20th, April 1st, April 5th, April 10th. It doesn't matter. Birds are going crazy. The, the gobbling is increasing, increasing, increasing until you open the season. Mm-hmm. If you're only hunting a little bit, and pressure is really light, you may see very little change in gobbling, if any. It may not matter at all what you're doing. If you're hunting the crap out of them, and you're, you know, whether you're on private land or public land, if the pressure's on, they change. It's just that, it's that simple. And it, the signal takes about a week. It takes about a week to 10 days from the onset of, of heavy pressure to gobbling going down dramatically. So, you know, one of the things I pointed out is that the data are pretty clear. It doesn't really, from a gobbling perspective, it really doesn't matter when when the season opens within, you know, if it's this week or next week, they're still gobbling. It's just when the hunting starts, depending on the amount of the activity, that's going to dictate what happens next. You know, does it decline markedly? Well, if the pressure's up, yes. If the pressure's not really high, no. Uh, we looked at some data today from some a private site that that's hunted, but it's, it's just very lightly hunted and doesn't seem. I mean, you don't see the signal that you see on these, you know, these heavily hunted sites. And and I think that, you know, I think states are going to be looking at that in the future because you know we want to hear birds, and if we don't, we're we're not satisfied. And there's more of us out there, and right. you know the demand is. We got a supply and demand. Yeah, we got a supply and demand issue, and mm-hmm. and in, when you're in that situation, you know the the agencies that are controlling the the supply, if you will. Well, there's no there, there's not so much they can do from one year to the next. To there's nothing they can do to dramatically alter supply. So they're going to change demand, and that's just that's just the realities that we're we're going to live under. I, I, I think moving forward, and whether it's tweaks to seasons, whether it's tweaks to you know to access, whether it's um, closing roads, you know, at times or altering in you know the, the time of, of hunting, like you know closing afternoons or implementing quotas, or you know, I don't work for agencies that set seasons, but I know I've, I've, I hear conversations and, and I know what's being discussed across a bunch of states. And, and those things are all, you know, being discussed as well. How do we, how do we reduce the demand a little bit while keeping us, us happy? Because they want, I mean, agencies need us to be happy. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think too, you know, we, we look at that 
situation where, you know, you, you said at 80% of, of the nests are getting destroyed, you know, we can maybe do a lot to bring back that peak week or so of gobbling late season by improving our nesting habitat and trapping some predators, some some nest predators, and, you know, doing those types of things to to turn it around so that these birds are not having nests destroyed and feel the need to go out and breed again and re-nest. So, you know, that's... And we talked about this Saturday, you know, I, I remember <laughs> at the end there was an older gentleman that asked me, do you have anything good to, to tell us? Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was like, you know, and I honestly, I'm very sensitive to that question because sometimes I get, I get pretty depressed myself. You know, I look at the data and, and I question, you know, where are we going to be in a, in a decade? If, if what I'm seeing continues, where, where are we going to be standing? And it causes me pause. And, and that gentleman's question, and I'll an, I answered it the same way I answer it every time when I'm asked that. You know, we've been down this road before. We, we, we turkey hunters working collaboratively with agencies and, and landowners, we've been here before. We had we had a daunting challenge when it came to restoring this bird, and yet it became one of the most you know remarkable success stories in conservation in North America. Now we got a different challenge. We've got you know back then there was no demand; there was just this desire to increase the supply. You know, tur- spring turkey hunting seasons didn't exist, and if they did, they were you know sporadic across the country. And now you fast forward to where we are now, and we've gone full cycle to where we're in situations where birds are are declining in areas, and yet there's a lot of demand still. Mm. And we're going to have to have conversations to we we can do this. We're just going to have. To, it's not as simple as it. And and I don't I can't even believe I would say that. Not that it was simple. I'm not even hinting or implying that it was simple to restore wild turkeys. Yeah. But what I'm saying is the issues facing the the bird are are very complex now, more so from a social perspective than they were back then. Yeah. And now now it's us. We are part of the the issue now. We're part of the conversations because it's not as simple as putting turkeys in vacant habitat and letting them do their thing. It's we have turkeys in in areas all over the United States and North America, and we have this legion of people like us that live their lives around hunting this bird. And we are passionate about it, and we don't want to lose that opportunity, yet we have some pretty significant hills to climb and challenges to face and to your point andy we we're going to have to be willing to have conversations and and promote things that are in the best interest of the bird and the the plant communities they thrive in or we're going to see these trends continue we've got to prioritize the bird just like we did when we restored them back then the, the the priority was wild turkeys being on the landscape that was the priority and those the folks that were responsible for that went went to hell you know went through hell to get turkeys where they are now and now we just face some different challenges but we can we can overcome them we're just going to have to work together and be i mean we're going to have to be pretty creative too because you know it's, it's a different world than it was then yeah yeah definitely well I don't know any better way to end it than with with that encouraging word. We we're gonna bring them back. Well, they're back. We have no choice. Yeah. 
we have no we have no choice than to than to work proactively and, and in many cases we're we're working reactively now right i mean we yeah we see these problems we know they exist we all have our perspectives as to what's causing them and in many many ways we're all right we're all you know our our what we think is going on is going on it's just that it's all going on and that creates complex scenarios for agencies that are working under the budgets they are and and it's going to be ultimately it's going to fall on turkey hunters to to drive the engine because we're the ones that have the vested interest in the bird and the agencies need us out there so it's gonna it's going to take a it's going to take an army if you will and we we have no choice that's the way i answered this question saturday I mean, I don't see any alternative. I mean, we we cherish this bird. We've done this before. Uh, what's the? I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, do we just allow the bird to continue to decline and and say, well, we saw it was coming, we knew it, and we just couldn't figure out a way to to work around it? No, nah, we're better than that. Yeah, uh, be tough to tell your grandkids that, you know. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, sorry, sure. you can't hunt turkeys. We we knew it was coming, but we just kept rolling. Yeah, yeah. And the issues are so complex, man. It's just, it, it, I, I, I beat my head against the wall at night because, you know, habitat and predation, these things that are just so complex and so, just so tough to get, get your hands on. And But there are models out there for addressing these types of issues at broad scales. And it's been done before. There, I mean, there are ways of incentivizing landowners. It just takes the right. I mean, obviously, it takes political savvy. It takes prioritizing the bird. But more importantly, I, I personally think it's going to take prioritizing the plant communities they live in yeah. and that they thrive in because a lot of critters thrive in those same plant communities. And globally, those plant communities are declining. And I think that I think that's where we're going to have to start putting some attention that turkeys are just a microcosm for a lot of other critters. Um, it's that we're interested in chasing turkeys and hunting them because it's part of who we are. But there's a lot of other critters that, that you're, you should expect to see in those same plant communities, and they're declining as well. Yeah, I mean, songbirds and insects and everything are on the decline. So it's, yeah, uh, yep. Is, and and, and many of them trace trace back to early successional habitats that are disturbed. Yeah. Yep. Very interesting. Well, this Dr. has been Chamberlain. great. As always, excellent podcast, and I really appreciate the information. Glad we got to talk a little hunting with you, not all biology, although we did get in there quite a bit. <laughs> I think it's impossible. I think it's impossible. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's impossible yeah. for me not to ask you a question re- relating to turkey biology while talking to you. Ditto that, Cameron. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's been fun, and and again, you know, thank you. I said this Saturday, thank you for what you do for the wild turkey and, you know, all all that your students do as well. It's appreciated. It is not without notice what what you all are doing, and we appreciate that. So one question very quickly. I know you, you need to go, and, and Cameron and I need to cut and run as well, but you mentioned something Saturday about a UTV going out of service and that it would be you didn't really say this this way, but I'm saying it this way, that it would be nice to possibly get some private donations to help buy a new one. So Yeah, I was I was using that yeah, I was using that as an example that, that question came up about, you know, 
about private funding and and so the audience knows i mean most of the work that that i do and a lot of us do is is state agency driven it it's it's Pitt and robertson funds or turkey stamp funds if you if you live in a state where you know there's a license sale but there's also a stamp you know those those funds can be generated toward you know can be directed towards research and and i work under large contracts like um you know, sometimes multi-million dollar contracts for these longer term projects. And it, it costs a lot of money to do the things we do. And, and sometimes, you know, we, because I work for a state agency, we have to, we have to be very careful with our spending. We, I mean, we have to line item things. We have to pre- predict out, you know, in the future, uh, what it's going to cost to do business. And, and, and this right now in our current economy i couldn't have predicted that gas was was going to be this high this spring you know i couldn't predict that repairing a polaris ranger was going to require twice as much money as it did a year and a half ago i I just couldn't have predicted that so when these things happen like these these utvs go down you know gas you know it we we have hens that are or toms that disperse and and go 20 miles down the road and it's now taking a student an hour round trip to go find them and that burns twenty dollars versus six dollars of gas you know you can't anticipate these things so that private funding you know donors people that are willing to just even you know hey i'm interested in what you're doing here's a hundred bucks that kind of funding is invaluable to people like me because it allows us to to shield off some of the uncertainty you know and and cameron knows he knows full well about this this is what he does for a living you know being able to shelter some of that uncertainty and 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 not have to worry so much about it is huge and it's particularly huge when times are like they are now where things are so volatile um things they just cost so much now that they that they didn't and it's it's hard on people like me to keep these field crews running with a budget that was created four or five years ago and and that's what kind of got us on that topic about that bike because you know when these things go down and we don't have the funds to cover the repairs because we didn't predict it you know a year ago uh private donations are huge yeah what can we do? How can we donate? Yeah, I mean, anybody that's interested in, and it's not just me, it could be any any researcher at, you know, at an, any university. They have these accounts that are like donors' accounts. So, for instance, somebody, you know, wants to donate 100 bucks to, to the UGA Turkey research. They, you know, you send a check, you say, I need, I want this to be spent solely for turkey research in South Carolina. That money goes into an account. The university is not allowed to take any money out of that. In, in other words, it all goes to the research. And then there's a fluid account there that that is not tied to a grant. It's not tied to you know a specific line item in a grant. And it offers me flexibility. And it's as simple as that. It's as simple as you know contacting me and saying, "Hey, I'm interested in in, in contributing a little something." how do I do that? And I can give people, it's really simple. It's literally as simple as writing a check, making it out to the right foundation and and mailing it. And it's, it's seamless. All right. You want to give your email address? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's M C H A M B. So just M chamber at U G A dot E D U. Or you can contact me on social media and say, Hey, what's your email address and I can I can message it to you and I think I speak for I know I speak for every person I work with at every other institution 
you know, getting getting checks for even really modest amounts of, of money that we can put in these these foundation type accounts that are that are they're flexible. It's just huge. It's such a huge help, particularly when times are like they are now. Fantastic. All right, guys, y'all come through and and give a little something back. So, Mike, thank you. This has been thank a lot y'all. of fun. Always good to catch up with you. Yeah. Yep. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with y'all. Take care. Y'all have a good night. You do the same. Thank you. Goodbye. Yep. All right. My, Another great one. My pen is out of ink. My pad is full. <laughs> Brain filled. Everything's good. There that is was... zero doubt in my mind. I'm re-listening to this episode in about, about I'd say, mid-April. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mid-April. First first day in May. Yeah. That, man. that was excellent. I mean, we covered a ton of topics there. We kind of got off on some little micro topics at, at points, but my gosh, all of that's pertinent to hunting turkeys, not just understanding them and excellent stuff. I mean, these series is so far, our guests have crushed it. Yeah, absolutely crushed it. So, yeah. and, and I just, I thought that went really well. And it, it was interesting to hear Mike talking about him actually going out turkey hunting, you know, instead of us just doing what I wish I could have done and asking 157 questions regarding why do turkeys do this? What are tur- turkeys doing now? What about the ones you tracked here? You know, it was good to just, hey, you know, let's talk hunting. Yeah. So, and all that stuff was, was as good as the science. Yeah. You know, I mean, man, that's just really good info. So I'm, Mike, thank you. I'm really excited to be able to share this one with the listeners and, again, just thankful of his time and the knowledge that he shares with all of us, not just about hunting, but about the wild turkey. And, you know, it's he's very unselfish when it comes to sharing that information. And, I, I mean, that just means a lot. So yeah, absolutely, and I'll I'll jump on the favor of the week. You you pretty much already did it in the interview, but guys, go and you know if you want to help out, they need a new UTV. Go go do some donations, like we talked about with Mike there at the very end of the interview, and help them out there. Yeah, and when you email him or you reach out to him on social media to find out where to send a check or how to get money into that research account let him know you heard the interview on the turkey hunter podcast yeah we don't get anything out of it other than it lets him know that the dude that listens to this show cares about turkeys and is willing to contribute to what they do and so yeah, I mean, you talk about contributing straight to the front line. That's one way to do it, right there. You it's got not it. going through any other organization or anything. You're, you're going straight to the to the biology. Yeah, <laughs> no skimming off the top on that one. So None. That's awesome. So that, that's pretty cool. But yeah, that that'll be the favor of the week this week for sure. All nice right. and easy. Yeah. Heck yeah. Well, what do you think? You want to wrap it up? Man, I say we just wrap it up and let's get on to next week because every week's getting us a little bit closer. Getting us a little bit closer for sure and. Our next guest is going to be an awesome one. I'm just going to leave it at that. So <laughs> tune in. These are not going to get any worse going on from here. No, we're bringing A-plus content in the summer months. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to schedule people, and we have actual time to do it. Yeah. this is. The, these are some great interviews, so definitely no, stay no. tuned with us. We'll, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week.
Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.